0: Hey, this is Cassidy of the MacGuffin Podcast. I just wanted to record a little intro here at the beginning of the show or at the top of the show um, to sort of let our listeners know that this episode was recorded before the most recent um, protests um, due to, you know, police violence and things that are happening around the country and we just wanted to acknowledge here on the McGuffin podcast and i'm sure Kyle and Ellie the guests from the Eword podcast who appear in this episode would also like to acknowledge that uh we do not want to belittle sobering times that we're in right now and um you know this this kind of a more fun light episode we just wanted to make it known that we understand what's going on out there and that we do take it seriously and that we hope that everybody who's listening um, stays safe.
1: Are there, like, good musicals that emo kids would enjoy? The American Idiot one? Shut up. No. (laughs)
0: Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Uh, This is a special episode. This is kind of a a niche episode. Um, We've kind of been doing this a little bit lately now that um, all the movies have been canceled or rescheduled to next year or the year after. So we've been taking on different topics, comparing and contrasting different types of movies, and I have been a fan of and... A pretty active listener of the E-Word podcast. This is the podcast that is hosted by Kyle and Ellie, and I have both of them on today.
2: My name is Kyle. I am a co-host of the E-Word podcast, and I'm in Madison, Wisconsin.
1: Sick. That's all we have to say. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> hi, I'm, I'm Ellie. I am a co-host of the E-Word podcast, and I live in Austin, Texas.
0: Awesome. And... Uh, one of the con- the concepts specifically that we're going to tackle today has to do with the subject of your podcast, The E-Word. Um, anyone who knows me in real life um, or maybe have listened to some of the guest spots I've done on other episodes, music podcasts such as The, the Great Albums podcast where I discussed Sunday Day Real Estate's diary um, a year or so ago. And I was a frequent, frequent user of the Reddit emo subreddit. And both of you are moderators of that subreddit. And uh, I mean, the E word podcast sort of grew out of that, right? Uh, Kyle is not a moderator,
1: but I am. Um, And it did, it did, it grew out of uh, Kyle wanting to translate like the discussions that were happening on the subreddit to uh, a podcast format. But uh, as time has gone on and. Uh, both the scope of our podcast has broadened and the scope of the subreddit has, uh, declined in quality. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've decided it was best to kind of cut ties with, uh, w- with Reddit, not from like a complete audience perspective, but just as like an, on an affiliation level. Um, and the podcast, while still about like DIY emo, is also about, you know, hardcore. It's also about, you know, just generally like, uh, the DIY youth culture. So
0: to speak. right. Subculture in general, um, which is something that I'm deeply interested in. And uh, again, I think people who's been listening to my show knows that I'm like secretly, n- not so secretly like trying to infuse as much punk and DIY uh, information in as many crevices as I can fit in this completely unrelated topic of a podcast. Just to get, just kind of get this conversation started uh, today. We're going to be specifically talking about emo in film and/or how it's been portrayed, or uh, certain films that have been adopted by the subculture. And kind of going to frame this around the film Donnie Darko, which I think is the film that most most commonly is associated with this scene. And we'll talk about. How appropriate that is or isn't. At the end of the podcast for our streaming homework, we're also going to be talking about uh, a little Australian film that got somehow got added to the Netflix queue called "Emo the Musical." Something that I curiously ran upon a few times and wondered what the hell it was about. So we're going to get into that as well. Uh, but if you if you don't mind going over it, what in your in your opinion is the current state? of emo as a subculture and as a musical genre, where was it when you guys first entered the scene and were, you know, somewhat gatekeepers of it, let's say. <laughs> and, and, and where is it now? And, and where do you think it exists in pop culture as a whole? Oof. It's a very broad question. I
2: yeah. Know. <laughs> I think right now, emo is kind of, just kind of means DIYs to
1: a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, DIYs kind of turned into, like, a genre. Yeah. Uh, But I don't know how it,
2: I don't know what people like, if there's another BuzzFeed article about emo, it's people are going to include mall emo and like, current shit like, foxing, I I think. So it's like, like, right. within within pop culture, it's kind of messy.
0: Yeah, because I think, like, if you go to the average... I'm 34 years old, so I lived through, like, the big phase of it in the early 2000s. I was in high school when Dashboard and and Hawthorne Heights and My Couple Call Romance and all those bands were just breaking, and I... And it was actually like a, a known cultural entity, and and I think if you talk to most people who aren't involved in like the DIY scene or the punk scene or the local music scene or whatever, that's mostly what they're going to be thinking of, even still to this day. Um, but it seems like just right under the surface of that, what what used to be occupied by what we would have called the indie rock scene in the early 2000s is now sort of been replaced by the modern emo scene or the post-pop punk scene if you will
2: mm-hmm. yeah I think what's especially kind of messy about it is like, like very mainstream pieces or uh, uh, publications will like report on contemporary emo but still also re- reference emo as just like my chemical romance hawthorne heights still so it's mm-hmm. just like it's it, it totally means two things at, at at the same time to like pop culture
1: it means yeah. it means a lot of things because like, then you also have this wave of like, gen z kids to whom emo means having like a teen wolf tumbler and talking about 21 <laughs> pilots a lot
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah.
1: then simultaneously like even like mainstream like normie type people will Tag me in posts about, you know, sad boy dudes who wear beanies and go to basement shows. So there's also still, like, that kind of, there. There's, like, some sort of knowledge that it's, like, an underground thing, but mm-hmm. also this, like, muddled idea of what, what the word means. Um, and none of it really relates to a mode of hardcore. Um,
0: Which is I almost mean, like a completely separate conversation, even beyond sort of the general... Uh, aspect that I'm bringing up because you know, this is a, sub, a subculture of music that has a long history, much longer than most people even realize it goes back to the mid-80s and it's actually funny talking about mainstream press covering this uh, the New York Times today just released an article randomly talking about like the 80s DC scene and like yeah. uh, oh, yeah. this write up on bands like 3 and Shudder to Think and that kind of stuff and um, and I have no idea why it was published in the middle of a pandemic, but there it is. Um, three is a
1: great band, by the way.
0: They are. That's a great record. And when I, when I went to a Comic-Con a couple years ago, I ran into Steve Nile, and I bought one of his comic books just so that I could talk to him about Grey Matter and Three, and then I had him sign my uh, DVD copy of uh, the Salad Days documentary. That's sick. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say he was appreciative, but I probably just came off like a huge goober.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I think band dudes run the gamut of being appreciative and scornful of goobers, sometimes at the same
0: time, you know? Right. Um, kind of going back to what I was originally talking about. Uh, I think that, yeah, it's kind of weird that this this concept of emo as both a cultural thing or a pop cultural thing. And then also a music culture thing, which is maybe maybe like a scene within a scene. And then also a historical thing. And all three of them seem to be living separate trajectories. Would you say that that's accurate?
2: Yeah. And I think most like people that are with this shit know how it's separated. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that I'm thankful for. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it makes your job a lot easier on the on your podcast as far as who you decide to interview and, uh, well, let's go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Would one of you like to describe to me what is the E word podcast exactly? How do you discuss this and um, like what what some things you've been doing with it lately? How long has it been going?
1: Two and a half years. Yeah, Jesus, uh, uh, it's going to be three years in November.
2: Yeah. I think. Yeah, it's it's kind of started off as one thing and ended up, not ended up, but, like, it's currently something that's different, and we kind of had a meta episode about this recently. But it started off as just kind of talking about what's happening currently in the emo scene, which, at the time, I didn't, like, I didn't realize it until now, but, like, there was a lot going on. There was a lot to talk about, like, every other week. Um, it was
1: crazy. We started off kind of, like, as emo TMZ. Yeah, no. <laughs> there was so much gossip happening. There were so many people being like outed as abusers like every other week. Um,
0: yeah, it was, it was uh, a little depressing for about the first six months or so of the show. <laughs> that's great. It's an email podcast.
2: <laughs> uh, but then we kind of transitioned to doing this year and a half long thing called A Decade Under the Influence where we covered uh, one voted on album per each year 2010 through 2019 and that is kind of where we spent a whole year just doing that and uh doing two episodes on each year like one about one album one about the rest of the year and now we're just kind of dicking around (laughs) but it's fun dicking around i know
0: (laughs) We're all sort of trying to uh, to find our footing um, in you know in the midst of a pandemic and everything. So everyone's show is sort of adapting. But I, you know the the decade under the influence I want to get into specifically because um, you guys pulled a lot of serious uh, talent onto the show. I mean you you talked about these albums, some of which have sold modestly well in the like indie sphere, and you've brought on a lot of the key performers and songwriters to actually discuss their own music with you, which anybody who's a like a fan of music and has watched a lot of interviews on YouTube and stuff knows that musicians hate discussing process. But somehow, they they seem very comfortable with you guys. How do you guys manage that?
1: Hmm. Shit, how do we manage that? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, It probably
2: has to do with a lot of nerding out about it and also like a lot of these artists are kind of talking about something that's like five years or older Mm -hmm. and uh, most of the bands are broken up. So it's kind of like no one's either thinking to talk to them or like they enjoy going back into that headspace to talk about it because they liked it and they miss it.
1: I think, uh, I think another little bit of a layer there is that at, at all of their hearts, they're also just DIY kids and we're just DIY kids, you know, whether that's like a hardcore kid or an emo kid or whatever. And, uh, we're just like approaching them as people. And I think that makes them feel more comfortable than if we were like, um, approaching it from like a singularly professional point of view or like a complete fan point of view.
2: Yeah, and I, I also, like, never considered, like, I, like, when I think about it, we've only done one quote-unquote interview, and I think that was the Wake was Still In Bed one, which was, like, a long time ago, and our whole decade thing was so specific that it wasn't just, like, like, press cycle-y, you know what I mean?
0: hmm yeah.
2: Would you agree with that, though, Ellie, that we don't really, like, interview bands? We, they're just, like, guests on our podcast?
1: Yeah, that I w- I was kind of trying to to get at that point when uh, when we were talking about, like, how we've been perceived as being pretty successful as getting bands to open up about process and stuff. It's that, like, uh, I mean, half the time, whoever the guest is that we have on, we refuse to talk to them about their band. We just make them talk <laughs> about other people's <laughs> bands. <laughs>
0: that's true yeah there is there is a lot of that which again that's something i think that um musicians especially if they're in the scene and they might be opening for other bands or have other bands open for them they're kind of reticent to talk too much about them about you know any kind of value judgments on their music but it seems when they're on your show it's like Oh, the shit
1: talk comes out.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you get them really comfortable <laughs> as far as what they do and don't like about what's going on right now.
1: I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say that that's because Kyle and I are very charismatic, warm people, and <laughs> people just automatically love us and open up to us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that could be it. And then later they hear the episode and go, "What the hell was I saying?" But. Uh- that yeah. Has that ever happened? Have you ever got an email where somebody was like, Can you delete that part?
1: It's actually been very rare. Um I think the the only person who's ever wanted us to cut like more than like one or two things out that we weren't already set on cutting was uh Corey from Prince Daddy. Um and even then it's not Corey wasn't even like talking shit. I think he just like wanted to make sure he didn't sound like too much of a goober and mm-hmm. he was also fried from doing like 34 other interviews that day
0: wow <laughs> all right <laughs> which is so he like, had him on uh, the press circuit
2: <laughs> well he like tweeted out like hey i'm leaving for tour in like two weeks i don't have anything to do is anyone to have me on their podcast and like he just must have said yes to every single person that asked <laughs> which is like which we recorded with him and we did a great episode all about 2018 and, like, mm-hmm. he didn't even want to talk about Prince Daddy, and I thought that was sick.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, I guess running on into our next subject then, I, getting back into movies. This is a movie podcast. Um, I'll, I'll open it up sort of with this. Uh, we're going to be talking about Donnie Darko, which I think is maybe the movie most associated with the emo scene, at least at one point. And I know that you've talked about this on your podcast a little bit, but would you say there's any other movies... Or television shows, maybe loosely or broadly, connected to this subculture?
1: Uh, Scott Pilgrim, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Someone, because I I posted on Twitter about, like, hey, is there anything you want us to bring up on this movie podcast? And someone was like, "Uh, Scott Pilgrim's depiction of DIY culture, which, I mean, that's definitely worth bringing up, because I think it's actually Mm -hmm. still really accurate in terms of... uh, the bassist of an indie rock band being like a, like a frumpy man boy loser who sleeps with underage girls. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wes Anderson movies in general. Uh, Someone told me to talk about SLC punk. So SLC punk. Um,
0: That movie SLC punk was extremely formative to me. I was like going through my like IFC film, um watching movies for nudity but then getting too wrapped up in in the plot to be turned on by them phase and (laughs) (laughs) that was that was a movie that like really turned me on to punk rock in a big way like i mean even though it's sort of a sundance version of it um that was one like the soundtrack you know downloading the songs from that and then like kind of going backwards from there and like like my interpretation of Punk as I as I knew it to be in my very limited view for a while was defined by that movie.
1: Yeah uh, i I watched that movie like really young, and then the older I got, the more I was like, "Holy shit!" The like the archetypes of characters represented in this movie are still like extremely accurate. Like every scene has like a Mike or a Mark mm-hmm. or a Sean, et cetera, et cetera. Other emo, I think honestly, like. Emo culture tends to attach itself a bit more strongly to TV than movies. Um, yeah. yeah. Like Freaks and Geeks, uh, My So-Called Life, uh, Degrassi, The Next Generation. Stuff like that, I think, is uh, is a huge part of emo culture. And then nowadays, people are really attached to like Arrested Development, and uh, it's always sunny. Um, mm. Community has been a big one. Emo kids tend to attach themselves to weird comedies more so than like dramas or I mean, absolutely not action movies except for fight club.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, if I were to, to nail it down, I think, um, and this will come up in the Donnie Darko discussion, but I think sort of the X factor is coming of age stories, pretty popular in the scene and, uh, uh, coming of age, specifically dealing with mental health.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm another big one along those lines uh welcome to the dollhouse i remember like a lot of kids in in my scene being attached to that todd salons type of stuff yeah, um, yeah. napoleon dynamite too which uh i think might still hold up i don't know i hope it holds up i haven't seen it in like ten years. <laughs> i've
2: heard it does but i've heard yeah. that like but i've heard that like the the next generation like just doesn't get it
1: That that would make sense because it's a lot about in between the internet starting and Mm -hmm. social media kind of taking over everything. So it's, it's for a generation that was kind of living through that weird barren period where there was a lot of growing pains. Um, And I also think a little bit that you have to be from like a depressing place with nothing going on to get (laughs) it to.
0: So funny story. Uh, Napoleon Dynamite takes place about 45 miles from where I grew up, and there are a few people in the movie that I went to college with who were locals of that town. It It takes place in southeast Idaho, and I'm surprised that anybody not from southeast Idaho relates to anything in that movie, because the humor in it is so specific to like rural Idaho Mormon subculture.
1: Uh, uh, they, <laughs> Vegas has a heavy Mormon population. So
0: Right, but it's a very different a little, flavor.
1: It is a very different flavor and also it's it's a lot more urban. Um mm-hmm. so a lot of the rural elements um I kind of had to glean from my parents or sorry my grandparents uh moving out to like bumfuck Utah. Uh so that yeah. also gave me a little bit of like a like a perspective on it.
0: Yeah, for sure. The other, the other exercise I wanted to try here, we'll see how this segment goes, but if there were to be a definitive emo movie or emo represented in a movie in such a way, I had you guys come up with a elevator pitch. And Ellie, uh, well, we can start with you. What is your elevator pitch for what your ideal emo movie would be?
1: Right, so my my concept was a nineties emo band reuniting and deciding to take a younger emo band on tour with them. Whoa. <coughs> oh that's so good. That's good. Yeah, so <laughs> and I, I cast I also cast the whole thing. Um
0: Oh okay.
1: So, so the band members of the nineties band would be Ethan Hawke, Parker Posey, Rory Cochrane, and Patrick Fugit. And then Perfect. the young the younger band members would be Lakeith Stanfield, Anna de Armas from Knives Out. Hunter Schaefer from Euphoria and Kier Gilchrist who is the the lead the main character on Atypical.
0: Mm, um, and isn't he I saw he's him He's like a, open a power for violence kid. Yeah, I yeah. saw him open yeah. for Regional Justice Center in <laughs> uh, a few months ago.
1: Yeah, I also I threw in some side characters Will Arnett as the tour manager, mm. uh, Michael Sarah as the merch guy that everyone is like mean to and makes setup stuff. Um <laughs> Paul Rudd is, like, the young band's indie record label owner, and Brian Cranston would be, like, a major label A&R guy trying to sign them. Uh, Eric Andre confrontationally interviews both bands for, like, a Pitchfork feature.
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) Alana Glazer is, like, an obsessed fan that's following them around on tour. Uh, I had a lot of fun with this, actually.
0: (laughs) I think you should make it happen.
1: Yeah. You should start a script. Yeah, I I think I could do it. I could manage it.
0: (laughs) um yeah because you know i think the it's really i i get really defensive and protective over how punk or indie or or emo or any of this stuff is depicted on film i think i was almost like violently angry leaving the theater after seeing um nick and Nora's infinite playlist (laughs) and it was like my least favorite movie for a lot of years because of that even a movie like um Green Room, which got a lot of critical praise, I was sort of cringing at certain things in that movie about how it depicts like punk and hardcore, um, and it's like basically it's just an excuse for a big like exploitation horror film, which mm-hmm. is fine. Um, but you know, I, I, I get caught on those dumb little details of like what people would or wouldn't do. Uh, but but Kyle, what is your uh, what's your elevator pitch?
2: So mine's not very fleshed out, but I thought that. Like, I think the main the main setting, the main story is like uh some is is some kids running a DIY spot. And I think a lot That's of really a lot of like the like tension and stuff uh kinda comes around like one of the bands getting big and like getting sent like uh pitches for like labels and stuff like that. And then, mm. you know, just other like inter-scene drama and stuff i think that's where like the conflict and stuff would come from but i think i think there is like some 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 like paths to like explore of like selling out and shit like that and what that means and stuff um
1: i think that could make a really good tv show
2: yeah so Mm -hmm. this kind of came out so i took a screenwriting class and we could either do like a, a tv show or like I think like, uh, made for TV movie uh, for mm-hmm. it. And I wrote a spec script or does spec mean that it's for an existing TV show? I don't remember. Yes. Well, yeah. So I wrote a script, an original script about like a band couldn't get big and they're about to break up. But then uh, they got offered a contract from a struggling record label, but they had to pretend to be a Christian band.
0: Oh, that's sick. <laughs> <laughs> that might that uh, might come up when we're talking about Emo the musical later. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's 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 really interesting. It kind of reminds me a little bit of did either of you see the movie Don't Think Twice about. Yes,
1: I was thinking that the entire time about the improv scene. Uh, yeah. Like Brabiglia. Yeah. Um, like The
0: improv scene is basically DIY for comedy nerds and i'm allowed to say that because my my regular co-host does improv comedy um mm. and i went to way too many of his performances growing up but
1: i did uh, i did improv and stand up for a lot of years so yeah right. i can i can co-sign that
0: all right I'll, I'll i guess i'll say mine and this is one i kind of had in my head for a while did either of you ever see the the uh Gus Van Sant film Paranoid Park
1: no Uh, yep. Yeah. yes uh one of my that's like one of my like pet favorite movies, uh, like from the IFC days, for sure. Yeah, like, yeah. I re- I don't remember if I've seen this, but I definitely like had
2: it in like my Netflix DVD queue for a little bit when I was subscribing. When to they were that. still
0: sending yeah. DVDs. Yeah. 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 It basically it's like it takes place in Portland, there's a bunch of skateboarders who are like latchkey kids and one of them witnesses a murder and then it kind of becomes more of like a Teen noir from that point, um, yeah, but like that's kind of but with
1: skater kids, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah and a, a, with less stylized dialogue or less dialogue generally. Um, yeah. But my my idea is kind of similar in in that sort of genre take. It'd be more of sort of a thriller or noir, but it would take place in the early '90s San Diego shake um, cafe scene, and we would have a band of uh, the of uh, the lead singer of a band who's Basically a young Justin Pearson, but we but wouldn't call him that exactly, <laughs> but based sort of on his early life. And uh, I would want to have Timothy Chalamet play this character because something – I don't know what it is, but I saw him in an interview or something, and I just saw him with a Spock haircut and tight jeans, and it totally made sense to me.
1: Yeah, I I can see that.
0: Um, And I think that that's an aspect of the scene that's still invisible to a lot of people. And, you know, at no point in the movie does anyone have to say the word emo or screamo or anything like that. And that still would only be the backdrop of an otherwise, like, crime movie or something like that. Somebody who sees something they shouldn't have seen. And it can can be totally genre from that point. But I think that would be a really interesting backdrop to a crime film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. uh, I... I've read Justin Pearson's autobiography, and let me tell you something. I would be shocked if he has not, like, accidentally witnessed a few murders. In his life. <laughs> um, also, just when I brought up Brick, uh, that just reminded uh, me of, the, of like, the, the kid who has a Bane hoodie randomly in one scene. That's right. Uh,
0: <laughs> oh, it's been too long since I've seen that. I don't remember that.
1: Yeah, he's, uh, he's in the parking lot when uh, Jessica Gordon-Levitt fights the, the, the Jock kid mm-hmm yeah do uh, people still
2: talk about that movie because it was like a big deal when it came out and It was kind of in like uh, some ways it f- seems a little ahead of its time yeah for, for
0: sure I, I think it uh it's ryan johnson uh who later went on to do looper and then star wars the last jedi and knives out and i think oh, the shit. controversy of the last jedi and then the slight rebound from knives out has buried anything he did before that unfortunately
1: damn yeah um, and i've liked he everything also directed uh, he directed several of the best breaking bad episodes too oh really oh okay yeah he did ozymandias i know and he did uh fly i was just ways. gonna like I,
2: I i for some reason had a feeling that he did fly when you like brought <laughs> that up
0: is that the bottle episode the yeah. one where they're yes. stuck in the yeah. thing yeah that makes sense I can see him coming in and wanting to do both of those episodes are kind of atypical from the show. All right, uh, let's go ahead and get into the meat of the episode then. And we're going to talk at some length about the film Donnie Darko. And uh, Kyle, would you like to describe what is uh, what is this movie about?
2: What I have to describe that the, the plot to that no one knows what it's actually
1: about. <laughs> I mean, this is a great Litmus Test. Like this is basically a Rorschach test of people's personalities. Yeah. to ask them to describe. <laughs> if
0: if that, you right? were going to write the description on the back of the DVD case, how would it go?
2: <laughs> uh, Jake Gyllenhaal looks like Connor Oberst. Uh, <laughs> um, starts seeing a bunny or a man in a bunny suit that no one else can see and, uh, discovers what do they call it? Loopholes in time travel,
0: black mm-hmm, holes, black mm-hmm. holes. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, but I remember watching the, the extras on the DVD too. I think the director's cut, cause you know, mm-hmm. when, when, when people had time to do stuff like that, for some reason, I did that with this movie and there was like a feature of like people talking about what they thought the movie was about And I think the one that I remember and, like, kind of, like, bought into the most was, like, this movie's about second chances.
0: Mm. Right. Yeah. So, the movie, as far as its plot, goes pretty elusive. And it's one of those movies, like a lot of David Lynch films or some Cronenberg films or um, what have you, where the actual goings-on, the A to B stuff (laughs) – uh, with the character is very much open to interpretation, and there's fan theories and blogs that have been written at length about what is or is not happening on screen. But the more and more I watch it, I think I'm less and less interested about the science fiction element of the film. Um, and I'm more interested in in the film as a character study, and I think that's, for me, where it works the best. You can't
1: see me, but I was nodding vigorously throughout that entire, (laughs) uh, last sentence. Um, the movie, I think, like, thrives when it's doing, like, uh, these kind of hyper-stylized vignettes about disaffected late 80s teen suburbia, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, particularly any scene with Seth Rogen is, uh, pretty great, but-
0: All all the bully stuff?
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I'd seen the movie a gazillion times. Like, this came out when I was right out of high school or in high school. I guess we should describe a little bit. So, like, when the the movie was first released in theaters in 2001, I believe, and it was released through uh, Drew Barrymore's Flower Films, which was a pretty new production company at that point. And it kind of was dead on arrival. It didn't really do much in the theater. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal was not a known... Quantity at that time, the best thing he was known for was October Sky and Bubble Boy.
1: Um, mm, this was this was like right pre-Brokeback Mountain, if I remember correctly. Re- oh, yeah. yeah
0: about, about a good two or three years before Brokeback. I think that came out in 2004 or 5. But, this movie ended up having this huge cult success later because it was shown a lot on HBO and people would pick it up at video stores and it became this big word-of-mouth movie and it was this You know, for I think for a lot of people who maybe never seen a David Lynch film or never seen "quote unquote" artsy pictures before, this was sort of their entry into how film can be cool without being like an action film, without being The Matrix or something. There was a lot of discussion amongst fans of the film and friends of mine about what it's really about and and what the order of events really are and how does time travel work and that kind of stuff. And I think even then I was less interested in that aspect of the film. Cause I always saw it as a depiction of, of psychosis and mental health. Um, at one point, you know, Donnie is seeing a therapist throughout the film. I think those are some of my favorite scenes in the film is the stuff between him and his psychoanalyst. Uh, and he's going into, you know, hypnotherapy and that kind of stuff. And she, she, describes to his parents later that he's showing the early signs of schizophrenia and to me that's a far more interesting character story than a kid who may or may have not have discovered time travel uh and sort of the emotional reality of what he thinks time travel is as opposed to you know whatever plot mechanics they're trying to work out here I, i also didn't realize that um Richard Kelly, who wrote and directed this film, this is his first film, was only twenty five or like twenty, like maybe a little bit older than that when he made this movie, which is infuriating
1: yeah <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree that it's uh th- the fact that it's about mental health is more interesting than any of the sci fi angles um I kind of think of this film as of a piece with uh another underrated two thousand and one movie uh ghost World, um, yes which I think also has a claim to being like one of the definitive, like emo movies. Sure. Um, Whereas ghost world, uh, is more like focused on depression, like inwardly faced Mm -hmm. depression and, uh, struggles with identity. Um, Donnie Darko is about outwardly facing, uh, struggles with identity and mental health struggles. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: and and disassociative disorders and
1: yeah. Um, I think, uh, also what you said about how it becoming, how it became like kind of like this, uh, this found object type movie among cultists, uh, is mm-hmm. also pretty, uh, parallel with, uh, the way a lot of people discovered. I'm, this band is an emo, but like Pinkerton by Weezer, you know, like, a, like it's a record that bombed, um, and was, and was discovered later. And the fact that it feels, and like it, like it, like it fell through the cracks of a major label or major film studio uh, system, um, but it has like all these quirky offbeat things for quirky offbeat kids to attach themselves to. Um, I can mm-hmm. definitely see like a lot of parallels with uh, kids discovering indie music and kids discovering indie film at the same time.
0: <laughs> I would agree with that, and like Pinkerton, it has been embraced by the emo community while not being emo whatsoever at all.
2: Yeah, but yet still kind of worked into the narrative.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 Because if, if if you look at the soundtrack of this film, this takes place in the 89, right at the Bush and Dukakis election that was happening, mm-hmm. and... October of 89 is when it takes place. And all of the music of the film, which I'm sure was handpicked by the director, is like this mopey 80s British post-punk stuff. Like stuff like like The Church and Echo and The Bunnyman mm-hmm. and st- music that I'm a huge fan of. Um, but, you know, I, I don't even... I I, I I read an interview with Richard Kelly where they asked him about its association with emo. And he said, well, I guess I was kind of like an emo living in a fraternity at the time when I wrote it. But um, yeah, I don't think he really had any idea that that was a subculture, even though Jake Gyllenhaal kind of has the haircut.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kyle, <laughs> when you said Jake Gyllenhaal looks like Connor Oberst in this movie, I my <laughs> mind was blown. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and then, of course, like, uh, if if we want to... Talk about Donny Darko being part of like emo revisionism. There's like other yeah. music revisionism in that you know the co- that cover of Mad World became I think more popular than the Tears for Fears original. Yeah, wasn't a fucking like Gears of War commercial when I was in high school.
2: Oh <laughs> Jesus Christ! Because uh, like it just it's so haunting and stuff. so. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: and, and and I think it's pretty 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 well associated with with this movie directly. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. whenever anybody hears it now, but I brought you two on specifically to talk about this film's uh life in the emo subculture. Do you think that's still the case or do you think it's very much that early 2000s like dashboard scene or yes.
1: the la- that that one?
0: <laughs> more so that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but like I Like, what I remember is, like, a friend's older sister discovering this movie, and, like, I wasn't even allowed to watch Radar movies by myself, so I had to, like, watch this with my mom
1: when I was, like, in 8th or 7th grade or some (laughs) shit like that. How fucking awkward was the scene about (laughs) (laughs) Smurfat? Very. But, like,
2: actually, remember that, that, that that friend's sister was, like, the first person that told me about, like, Bright Eyes and shit, too. Mm-hmm. And like, and their mom was concerned about her listening to Bright Eyes and shit like that. So it was like definitely associated with like people that were onto like sad shit
0: from like an early early standpoint. Yeah, I always figured that the association came from Hot Topic selling Donnie Darko merch.
2: Oh, was that and a that, thing?
0: Yeah, like in two thousand three, two thousand two, um, when the movie started to take off. Uh, From word of mouth, uh, it was like the two things you would see the most in A Hot Topic was The Nightmare Before Christmas and Donnie Darko. And both of those movies were kind of like loosely associated with the, I guess, the glamier, the gothier aspects of emo at the time. I, I, I
1: would take it as I think the three most common things that I would see in Hot Topic around that time was like Frank the Bunny related stuff, the Jack Skellington hoodie. And Mm -hmm. the Gurr backpack.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: From Invader M. Yeah. Um, to put it, to put it into perspective, like as to like which era slash like interpretation of emo this movie is closest to, this is definitely like a movie that I liked at the same time as I had like live journal usernames like XXX (laughs) Taste of Ink 96 and, uh, from whence you came, but whence was spelled like Pete Wentz. Um,
0: there you Just go. Just that
1: yeah, that kind of that that, that kind of style and, and scene. like um,
0: early MySpace makeout club era.
1: Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah, only Undies Club, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think honestly that this this film like the legs that this film has um aren't so much steeped in emo culture anymore as they are in like uh, freshman film major core. Mm-hmm. You know, like the 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 kids who whose favorite writer is like Juno Diaz, and they smoke American Spirit yellows, just that kind of thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I think that you know, in a lot of ways, this film is kind of like indie film training wheels. And there's a few there's a few filmmakers kind of in this world. I think early Kevin Smith is kind of indie film training wheels, yeah. even. Some of the early Tarantino stuff. I mean, those are certainly the movies I was getting into at a, at a point in time that like led me into. Like, I remember the first time I saw Lost Highway and Blue Velvet. I was like, "Oh, that's where he got everything."
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think 2001 is also the year that the Royal Tenenbaums came out, and
0: it is. Which I actually think I saw that before I saw Donnie Darko because yeah. I liked all those actors and I rented it on a whim like on VHS and uh, I always liked that movie but it was one of those movies that every time I would tell people that I liked it they thought I was really strange because it was the movie full of funny people that wasn't funny <laughs> yeah
1: that's the movie <laughs> with Luke Wilson but Luke Wilson isn't funny he like attempts suicide to an Elliott Smith song yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly I- I love the Royal Tenenbaums because um it was like one of my favorite movies for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like every year that I watched it again, I would like glean some new insight about life. Uh And now I feel like that kind of like Wes Anderson aesthetic is like played out or mocked. But you know, when you go back and you actually like sit down and watch Royal Tenenbaums or Rushmore Hmm. bottle rocket or the life aquatic like i think you still get some of that like whimsy and charm that yeah. a lot of other filmmakers kind of stole or watered down
0: oh i was gonna say a lot of people kind of took the the aesthetic of wes anderson or all the surface uh elements of wes anderson movies like attention to detail the maquettes and um mm-hmm. you know the strange clothing and the pastel palettes and that kind of stuff and they they that's what they gravitated toward. But to me, the stuff that makes his best movies work is that deep undercurrent of melancholy just below yes. the surface of the comedy. Mm-hmm. But getting back to Donnie Darko, um <laughs> apologies. <laughs> you're fine. This happens a lot on this podcast. Uh the one thing that the one thing that I noticed that I didn't notice before, uh at the beginning of the film, when there there's that big long tracking shot where he's on the bike and it's to the uh is that Tears for Spears? The No, that's uh, Killing Moon by uh, um, Echo and the Bunny Moon.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, there's a long tracking shot where you see the whole town and there's somebody reading Stephen King's It at the beginning of the... And that immediately like, put this thing in my head where I was watching it and I realized, oh my god, this movie so badly wants to be a Stephen King story. Like, uh-huh. it has so many Kingian tropes all throughout from... The Frank character and like the the prophecy aspect of it, the weird otherworldly like um almost uh cosmic horror element of it, and then you have the super religious um zealot characters, you have the insane bullies with switchblades, like mm-hmm. there's so many and then, and then kids riding around on bikes. there's so much king in this movie.
1: Yeah, also also very, very real and present danger uh, to children, to small children. Yes. Uh, which I think is a I think is a very kingian trait. I've always respected that about Stephen King, that he's not afraid to like put kids in real danger. Um
0: <laughs> Right.
1: <laughs> and I think that uh I think that you're totally right. Um and it also makes me feel bad about like enjoying Donnie Darko a lot more than most Stephen King film adaptations.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, th- I don't know. A lot of the best Stephen King adaptations were when directors just decided they were going to do whatever the fuck they wanted and just use his text as the, as a loose outline. Um, the ones that try and follow it more closely ends up feeling kind of campy or so- certain things don't translate very well. Uh, but th- And I think, you know there is sort of like the subgenre of people just taking inspiration from his stuff like this or stranger things or what have you. Um, maybe even like the really early M. Night Shyamalan stuff uh, that kind of works on a different level because it's more just taking the best aspects of those tropes or maybe even like early Spielbergian tropes and making it work for a new generation.
1: Yeah, I can, I could see that. Well, I but I do like Misery, and I think Misery is actually a pretty close adaptation. Um, yeah, that
0: one's really good. In that
1: opening scene,
2: there when he's riding his bike, there's a red car that drives by, and that's the same red car that runs over Gretchen. Did you ever oh. catch that? I yeah. didn't. Yeah,
0: I didn't.
1: That was pointed out to me on a blog like years ago, but I didn't. I didn't catch it by myself.
2: Yeah, um, I, I'm sure I read that on some
1: Donnie Darko blog back in the day god donnie there how many donald donnie darko blogs are there that's probably right, why Blogspot started yes <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> it was like that and then like the multiple theories about what mahalan drive is about um <laughs> but i think uh, this is one of those films where it's like this the smallest town ever like you get the feeling, I think it's shot in L.A. I'm pretty sure because the Arrow Theater is like the main theater that's used for the film when they're in the movies. Um, but it feels. They go see Evil Dead. Yeah, when they go see oh, yeah, Evil yeah. Dead, that's the Arrow Theater, which I used to go to a lot when I was living in in and around Santa Monica. But uh, it's supposed to take place in like a small town called Middlesex. It's, I, it's supposedly a pretty conservative town. It's what you kind of gather from like most of the adult figures we see in the film. Uh, and watching the movie now a little bit older, you realize how few characters are actually in the film where they keep recycling like these tertiary characters to be in certain parts of the movie. Like that kid from the video, like is later he's in, he's used um, in the assembly scene well
1: what it accomplishes is kind of like this uh horrific mirror image of like the flintstones where the repetitive <laughs> nature of it makes it feel like claustrophobic yeah for mm. sure and, and the i think the atmosphere of the film is like highly dependent on how isolated the setting is and mm-hmm. correlatively how isolated that makes donnie feel
0: <laughs> right yeah but then you, you look at like the uh like all the things that the town does, like all the events and stuff that are happening at the town, the the mom and the uh, uh, Donnie Darko's mom, and then like the super religious school teacher, both of their daughters are in the same dance troupe.
2: Sparkle Motion.
0: Sparkle Motion. <laughs> 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 and uh, there's, it's a, I guess, a, a large enough town that, you know, Donnie's able to get um, therapy through a. Through a hypnotherapist which is kind of seems out of sync with like the conservative nature of the town
1: but it's also seemingly very wealthy
0: yes like,
1: yeah for sure they, go, they they go to like a private school with uniforms um that's true so I I always got the got the sense that it was like a suburb of a bigger city um mm-hmm. like on on the outskirts uh not quite rural but definitely like you have to wade through a lot of like dirt roads with grass on the side of them to get there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Donnie's house and everyone's houses are pretty large. Uh, And this would be $1989, but even still, Um, what do you guys make of the ending? Not so much the science fiction wormhole stuff, because you know, that's open to a zillion interpretations, but I guess the interpretation that was always sort of explained to me, and I I suppose I adapted or adopted for myself, is that the ultimate message of the movie or for Donnie's arc is that the world would be better without him in it. Yeah. Is that what you kind of took out of it?
2: Yeah, because I definitely was like thinking, like, okay, like this is essentially him committing suicide,
1: you know? Yes. Yes. Um, it's a lot like the ending of Ghost World, where I definitely interpret it as like metaphorical suicide. Um and I think it's less like uh, that the world actually would be better without Donnie in it, but Donnie kind of uh what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Not projecting, but like hypothesizing about like all the shit that would go wrong, um if he left himself go unchecked. And uh just deciding to take himself out of the picture at the first available opportunity
0: yeah so do well, you, do you see the majority of the movie as being a fantasy then or do you or do you take it um just that the the frank stuff the rabbit stuff the science fiction stuff is the fantasy and that everything else was happening
1: um i I don't know I think it's supposed to be a a little bit muddled as to what is real and what isn't real mm. um stuff like the Patrick Swayze character being a child molester, um, I think probably was real. Um, and then other stuff like, uh, Gina Malone getting run over was less real.
0: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And, and do you think that that message of the film, the kind of, the way that the character thinks about himself or the way that he feels that he is, doing more harm than good in the world is, again, what sort of attracted it to this audience.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because
0: um, it's, if, in an
1: elliptical way, the film is about, like, self-hatred. I I saw
2: some people reading the ending as, like, Donnie's, like, essentially saving people. Or he's, like, some kind of savior because he went out the way that he goes out, but never really... Mm-hmm. He, do- he martyrs himself. E- yeah. But I don't know, like, what is he saving himself from? Or his loved ones, etc. from?
0: Right. So I guess, like, if you took the film literally, if he doesn't commit suicide at the end, if he doesn't decide to fly off into the wormhole or whatever, um, then uh, his mother and his sister die in the air crash because they go to enter into that dance contest. That's right. And... And uh, Jenna Malone doesn't get hit by the car at the end, so those are the oh, three. Jenna
1: l- Malone, oops. Those are it's
0: those like, are yeah. the three people that he's saving. Um, however, Patrick Swayze still goes unscathed, and he's getting away with some serious shit. Does Drew Barrymore still get fired? No, she doesn't because it was if he died when he was supposed to die when the when the jet engine fell in his room, then. What ended up getting her fired ultimately was that the flooding of the school was based upon one of the textbooks she's teaching, and that was done by Donnie in a fugue in a state.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so Drew Barrymore doesn't get fired. So really, the, the only people he's not protecting are... All all those poor children
0: (laughs) in the kitty porn dungeon in Patrick Swayze's house. Yes.
1: Yeah, but
0: but
2: it's but it's also like Die never has a good relationship with his folks or his family.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Um, I can't see him
2: wanting to like genuinely loving them because he calls his mom a bitch. He him
1: him and his dad don't identify politically. Uh, Him and his dad like do not have a connection like his dad like dissociates pretty much mm, like, yeah uh whenever anything in, involving Donnie's like mental health comes up um
0: but i think that can kind of be explained as a as a projection of self-hate too like he he ends up separating himself from the ones he loves because he feels like a burden on the family because it, you know earlier in the film before the film starts we learned that he was Taken out of school for burning it on a house um, in a in a, a fit or a rage, and then um, that's what ends up putting him into therapy in the first place. And I think, to a certain extent, I I think, especially when you're a teenager and you're really frustrated at everything, generally you send a, you tend to project that onto the people you love the most.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't get along with Maggie Gyllenhaal, but I think he does have affection for the the little sister. Yeah, yeah. But is that like a is that like a call Caulfield like Catcher in the Rye complex? Probably.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think he even so, gets along with the with Maggie a little bit because they they the Halloween party together.
1: That's true, and I I did always take the you can go suck a fuck conversation to be like playful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like they
0: yeah. were both trying to freak out their parents. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, her response is...
0: to it is to laugh.
2: Yeah. I, I think, like, the whole family dynamic is definitely very relatable and very real. And, like, even mm. though it's, like, 89, it's still surprisingly, like, yeah,
1: there's tons of kids that don't. Like... I mean, uh, Richard Kelly did not, was not a teenager in 1989. Right. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Right, so that was a conscious decision too, because if he was setting it when he was a teenager, it would have been late '90s, and he specifically sets in '89. I don't. Do you think it was just so he could fit in all that new wave? <laughs> uh, f-
1: yeah, that's a that's a distinct possibility.
0: <laughs> even though n- people in Middlesex, you know, even though it's a, I guess a fictitious town, definitely would not have been listening to that music. Like, if you went to Donnie Darkrow's party in 1989, they would not have been playing The Church and Joy Division.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, even in 89, that stuff was, like, no longer in vogue. I think in 89, those kids would have been listening to, like, White Snake,
0: Right. True. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess just to wrap this up, um, you know, we talked a little bit about whether or not this film still kind of has a legacy in the emo scene or... Or what connections it still has or doesn't have. Do you think that uh that this film could still resonate with like quote unquote twinkle dorks, which are like <laughs> <laughs> I guess the the more modern iteration of like pot smoking skater kids who kind of listen to emo but definitely don't look it?
2: Uh, I like if someone wants to watch something that's like angsty, I think like this is a good movie to watch. But like I'm like I think a lot of twinkle dorks now just would f- rather be fit uh watching like Super Bad and like Pineapple Express and like I feel like they just want to laugh now. Yeah, yeah. Or
1: you know, the younger ones I think would just be like watching people stream on YouTube for sure.
0: <laughs> that's true. <laughs> What was that? Or that, Twitch. Yeah. Or TikTok <laughs> or whatever is going on now. Um, to be. Uh, <laughs> what was that show that was on Netflix that was all about suicide that was somewhat controversial, had a couple seasons? 13 Reasons Why. why. Yeah. Is that in the emo world? I feel like it no. would or should have been. Or was it too on the nose?
1: No, it was less in the emo kid world and more in like I was talking about earlier like the theater kid 21 pilots fan world.
0: Okay, but isn't that almost like the natural progression of the Hawthorne Heights kid?
1: I mean, I think the I mean, you had to stay up till like 11 p.m. to watch a Hawthorne Heights video on Fuse or MTV2. So I think there was a little bit more of like a barrier to entry for that stuff. Yeah. Um I mean, people I think people forget that like uh bands that were on like Victory or Drive Through weren't necessarily on the radio like in the same way as like Kelly Clarkson or Bowling for Soup was in 2003 mm-hmm. and 2004
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely discovered most of that music through video, I think more so mm-hmm. than anything. Um Yeah. Well, like Yeah.
2: Led Stevens untitled rock show. <laughs> <laughs> Like, do you think that, like, contemporary twinkle dorks like try and consume like cool
1: media? Even no, no. I think that's that what I think is like a hip- huge disconnect now. From yeah, I think hipness was much more of like a uh, a, a known quantity uh, back in the day, back when we were sort of coming of age, um, and the kids who are forming the current and future generations of twinkle dork dumb are much less invested in like anyone thinking that they are cool or their metrics for coolness have shifted like drastically
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah because it used to seem like and maybe this will parlay a little bit into emo the musical but it used to seem like emo kids were the weirdos or the like kind of pseudo goths or whatever like kind of like took that place as like the kids who stood by themselves and didn't really talk to anybody else and that kind of stuff in the high school setting. Um, The the Ally Sheedy archetype of the Breakfast Club. And (laughs) nowadays, it kind of, now it's not that weird that they might play sports or hang out with the stoner kids or whatever. Like, it seems like it's like, I guess all of the outwardly um melodramatic aspects of the genre are pretty much not there anymore
2: yeah they're like watching yeah. like i don't know like the, the shit that they consume is fucking like eric andre and like whatever is like funny yeah, and 30 prank. seconds long
1: like <laughs> yeah um yeah it's you know like uh the jonah hill 21 jump street I was watching that and I was like, this is completely accurate. Like Mm -hmm. the, the, like high schoolers now are not stratified into cliques like they were like represented, you know, in movies like Clueless or going back to the eighties, like the breakfast club and fast times. Like it's not, it's not, uh, divided into cliques the way that it, that it used to be. And so I think that takes a lot of pressure off to be. Engaged in media that people who you like seem to also be engaged in. A lot of kids are like genre agnostic now, basically.
0: Right, yeah, it's a lot more easier. It's a lot easier to kind of flow in and out of different scenes or subcultures depending on what your friend group is unless you live in Australia. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Ellie, would you like to describe to us what is happening in 2016's yes, Emo I cannot the fucking musical. believe.
1: <laughs> I cannot believe this movie came out in 2016. <laughs> um, so, uh, in 2016's "Emo the Musical," uh, and which is an Australian film, um, the main character uh, is uh, someone who still puts eyeliner on and still. <laughs> uh makes self-harm marks on his arm with uh with eyeshadow and is kicked out of his school for attempting suicide which we find out later he didn't actually attempt suicide he faked it um and wants so badly to be in uh an emo band which doesn't even meet the harshness threshold for 2016 pop punk <laughs> But is, is, uh, is caught in between wanting to be in that clique and his lust for the hyper Christian girl next door, uh, who is in like her own evangelical Christian group. Um, and that tension kind of informs the rest of the movie until it culminates in him deciding to leave his emo band and join the Christian band yeah. and compete in the school rock competition.
0: Yeah, it's basically a star-crossed lovers kind of story. It's at the heart of it, I suppose, is kind of a two people from different sides of the tracks kind of thing. Um, yeah, this movie is befuddling. I, I, it totally <laughs> makes sense that it wasn't made here, because every everything... I mean, first of all, these kids wouldn't even be listening to rock music, let alone like 2002 era emo music right so here's the thing uh england
1: never really understood emo no and and australia an australian is just a less distinguished version of an english person so they (laughs) understand it even fucking less
0: right Um, for all we know they just (laughs) got it
1: (laughs) yeah it's like a weird it's like this (laughs) awful bizarre game of telephone and it's not even true that they just like, even like the mall emo aesthetic, like Parkway Drive is an Australian band, if I'm like recalling correctly, or I Kill the Prom Queen, one of those fucking weird 07 metalcore bands. Like, mm-hmm. Australia is aware of mall emo at the very least. So this just. The fact that it came out as as recently as it did is the most confusing thing about it. And they don't even, like, wink-wink, nudge-nudge about how out-of-date these kids are. Like, we're supposed to just take it at face value. Um,
0: Of course, every high school still has an emo subculture in it.
1: If you were to ask me, I didn't even think teenagers were still Christian in 2016. (laughs) As a block.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's a little confusing as to where like the the school politics uh, here. It seems as if the it, they they're in a Christian school because it has a chapel and everything.
2: Which yeah, that like wasn't really developed that whole
0: no s-
2: setting
1: <laughs> no no the and the message of the movie is also very muddled. I'm not sure like what it was trying to convey. Uh, other than like some weird enlightened centrist take, but instead of it being left wing and right wing, it's Christianity and emo, um, <laughs> and they also keep calling it emo rock, which was like infuriating,
0: right? Um, or referring to each other as emos. emos.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah he he's an emo at my school.
0: Uh, <laughs> ju-
1: <laughs> was just <laughs> completely baffling, uh, and they also we're trying real hard to impress like an older emo uh david skeleton <laughs> <David's-> right <laughs> doug- i mean doug skeleton I- wasn't it doug Ske- i mean it doesn't matter no, they desperately so just wish that they could name him jack skellington yeah um, <laughs> so funny and he looks he looks exactly like have you have you all seen the emo dad meme <laughs> no
0: uh don't where it's like up.
1: It's like the forty-year-old guy who's like got like the flat ironed hair and is in like scene merch, and he's taking a mirror selfie.
2: Um, oh, except
1: he did it in like twenty fourteen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right for sure. That's it. That's that's who uh, Doug funny looks exactly like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So like their depiction of emo kids in high school is really weird. Um. Besides the fact that it's it takes on like every worst stereotype about being suicidal and cutting and and being overly depressed for no reason and being antisocial for no reason, all this stuff like this story, it wouldn't make it a better movie, but it would make a little bit more sense if they were like black metal kids or something.
1: Yeah. 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 Um. Also, the emo kids are apparently, like, tough guys. Like, they, like, fight off the the, the weird bully who is also, like, an accountant. And, <laughs> right. And they're like, this is this is your locker now. And they, like, send another kid running with, like, his locker material. Yeah. Um, so the emo kids are, like, kind of, like, cool bullies. Yeah. In this movie, which, in my experience, like, emo kids were, like, the... They were alienated, but they were not like connected enough to get into like underground music. So Right. They were just kind of stuck with being emo or scene kids. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. In in my history, it was everybody who was a Blink one eighty two or Sum forty one fan the next summer came back with a Thursday hoodie. And it was like the same kids, just with a new a new look. Um and a slightly new musical palette. But they, they weren't Satanists. They weren't burning Bibles, and then nobody was afraid of them. Damn. Yeah,
1: it was. It was just. Uh, it was very awkward, um, and it wasn't helped by the extremely low caliber of acting, um, nor yeah. the lighting and editing, which made it feel like like an ABC Family show. Like, does it anyone does. remember that show, uh, The Secret Life of the American Teenager? That awful no. piece, like dog shit ABC Family show. It looked exactly like that, and um, that's that seems to be like kind of like the weird lighting that a lot of more recent like m- single cam dramas have have taken on. Um, but it was just gross. Uh, <laughs> Kyle, how did you describe it? I said it was like a bad episode of Nuds Declassified,
0: yes. which is like a Nickelodeon
2: <laughs> show from my time. It was, was like an after-school
1: uh, show. A lot of episodes of which were directed by uh, the guy who... Uh, Savage Steve Holland, the guy who directed um, that John Cusack movie.
0: Which one? How, what Better Off Dead. Better Off Dead. Better okay. Off Dead. Yeah. Yeah, It. I'm, I mean, there's so many things. Uh, what did we think... I mean, this is a musical, and the best thing I could say about it is... It, the movie it does improve a little bit when they're singing and not talking. Um, <laughs> I largely, completely disagree. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. There were a couple of the songs that I thought were vaguely funny. I liked the "Give Up" song at the beginning, "Just Give Up," um, about abandoning your ambitions and dreams um, and going with Jesus instead. I thought that was kind of funny. L- like, and then I like the songs well, song That song was there. like
1: Kmart. Oh, sorry
2: <laughs> i i like the songs and i thought they were funny but like what they were trying to do just didn't sound like emo or christian oh, yeah. rock it like at one point my girlfriend was like are you listening to bell and sebastian when they were playing <laughs> like folk music
1: uh, dina watched this with me and she was completely perplexed by uh the the folk song that they play on cassette that's later on the radio that's like nothing about our relationship is illegal <laughs> like i wasn't even sure what joke they were trying to make with that yeah like um they couldn't even get the genres right that give up song like i i respect that you thought it was mildly funny it seemed like a shitty kmart version of uh, like a song from book of mormon to me um
0: <laughs> yeah i mean there's there's it's all pretty low rent i wouldn't i wouldn't uh I wouldn't say anything here is a, a definite success, but um it seemed like to me that the, the guy who made this film, who wrote and directed this film, wrote the music first, like just had a batch of songs he thought were funny and is and then wrote a movie around it. Because uh the plot moves in weird fits and starts as far yeah. as you know, when we decide that this character wants to be with this friend group or when he decides to abandon them. And is he going to like hook up with the emo chick to be the emo power couple? But he's like torn between that and the other girl. And even just on like the basic, like high school musical level, which I think this is kind of aspiring to be like sort of a high school musical meets glee as making fun of 2002 emo stereotypes. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't even like have the the same skill or streamline quality that either of those properties have.
2: Yeah, I mean,
1: like, yeah, there was a part of the. <laughs> Go ahead.
2: I was just gonna say, like, they, 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 they could have made a lot of good jokes that they just didn't make if they could have just like referenced things that could like, like they could have played on nostalgia, but they couldn't even do that.
1: There was only one My Chemical Romance reference, and that's the only band reference in the entire movie. Yeah, it's um, fucked up to me. The, the plot moves so weirdly. There was a part that I thought was like the end of the second act, and then I paused the movie to see how far into it I was, and I was halfway through. Um, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. songs all had the exact same vocal melody, and they all had this quality of like trying to fit too many words into a line, so it just sounded like awkward talk singing and i had this revelation like 30 minutes in that i f- i felt like i was watching like a front bottoms musical <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i was gonna say that a uh, panic at the disco based their entire career on talk singing with too many words and syllables
1: panic at the disco don't talk sing brendan urie is actually a, a highly accomplished singer but uh, he stopped trying to fit too many words into lines when Ryan Ross left the band and stopped writing lyrics, and ah. uh, I, I I I will pull back from my gay theater kid persona now.
0: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know maybe, and and I think that's kind of like what the film's trying to appeal to because it's definitely not appealing to emo kids as they as this movie seems to think still exists. Um, I think it is kind of aiming for that post glee post high school musical theater geek but are they gonna dig this i don't know
2: i don't know like i definitely thought of the time i was watching glee when i was watching this because i was like okay glee's over the top and like kind of touches on like current issues and shit but like and i like and but like this doesn't get anywhere like relatable in any sense because like even if you're emo you probably didn't get kicked didn't get kicked out of your school for trying to hang yourself six times or whatever <laughs> it's just yeah. it's just like too yeah. over the top that it's like there's nothing for anyone to like even laugh at
1: yeah i was i was just gonna say i kept trying to broach these topics about like sexuality mm-hmm. and mental health and identity while also being funny, and uh, it just made me really want to watch the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is a musical show that is very like fast-paced and cleverly written, and does broach very serious topics with uh, a lot of smartness and sensitivity. Um, right. And this movie is kind of like the like like the bizarro version of that.
0: Yeah, it, it, I can I, like, I can see that the guy who made this film. He thinks he's making satire. Um yes. And, <laughs> like, it's something, like, there's a lot of, like, all the stuff that dealing with, like, the uptight Christian prudish kids. And then, like, there's this gay subplot going on with one of the characters where he's administ- uh, self-administering shock therapy whenever he has fantasies. Um, he was getting
1: off on that, right? Like, he was... I guess... <laughs> <laughs> That—that's what I gather. It looked like he was in like ecstasy every time he shocked himself. Yeah. Uh, But still, the gay characters were the only likable characters in the entire movie. (laughs) It's true.
0: Right, even though at times the movie didn't even seem particularly on their side, there's also one of the characters who's knocked up and is trying to hide it. Speaking of Jenna Malone, I thought of the film Saved more than once. I love
1: that movie so much. Yeah. That's such a good fucking movie. And it's, Um,
0: I feel like this guy almost thinks he's making that, or almost thinks he's making his version of But I'm a Cheerleader, but is like so not even as close as he thinks he is
1: let me tell you the christian girl in this movie is no mandy moore all right (laughs) agreed (laughs) either in acting prowess or in singing chops god how good would saved have been if it were a musical holy shit yeah and the way the songs are constructed uh kind of reminded me of like this newer wave of like pop oriented Broadway shows like mm-hmm. uh, Be More Chill or Dear Evan Hansen, um, I might be uh, referencing things that are completely out of uh, y'all's purview here. Um, you d- I, I you definitely
0: to- are, but I I get the idea. Like I I think I've heard. Well, what was that one? The last the last five years, the last five days. What was it called? You remember? Oh, fuck if I that, that uh, musical. That They made a movie out of it recently. Um, That
1: might have been a little past my time. I dated a theater person, so I was like inundated with a lot of bullshit (laughs) musicals.
0: (laughs) But it had music kind of like this, where they introduced like acoustic guitar and more um, traditional instrumentation, like pop instrumentation instead of um, musical theater instrumentation. So I I get the the concept of like a, a pop musical. I don't know, this movie made me very,
1: like, not even sad, just kind of confused. (laughs) Like, this is the first time I've felt, like, completely bewildered uh, coming out of a movie. Mm -hmm. But also, I didn't want to watch it again to figure out why I was so bewildered. It was just kind of like a a bitterly unpleasant experience.
2: (laughs) It would have been fine if it, like... If it just made fun of and misinterpreted emo and stuff like that, but instead it was just like too poorly made to even get like a good cringe watch out of it.
1: <laughs> there, there actually is like a pretty entertaining musical that like plays off misinterpretations of like mall emo culture, um, but like the way it approaches it is so batshit. It's called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and it's like a retelling of like Andrew Jackson and the atrocities he committed like um throughout his career and as a president. Jesus. Um, That's some big brain <laughs> shit though. Yeah, but he's like he's, he everyone in the in the musical is like a mall emo and they're they have like they sing songs about like self-harm and shit. Um and it's actually like pretty funny and charming. Uh the soundtrack's on Spotify.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. To me it was like it was like somebody who was already too old for the scene when it was happening, who was cryogenically frozen from 2006 and then unfrozen in 2016 and decided to make it without any knowledge of what's happened in the last 10 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And somehow got um. like a like a million dollars to make this. <laughs>
0: Yeah, or something. Maybe it was funded by the Australian government. Maybe they make films over there like like they do in Canada. Yeah. I don't know.
2: That's actually a good point.
0: But like, And I, every time something didn't make sense, I had to remind myself, but it is Australia.
2: Yeah. I always thought that, like, all right, it has to be really good if it's going to be a musical, because you have to put money into, like, recording, like, songs yeah. and writing songs. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm always just, like... F- completely like mind-blown when like a musical just
1: sucks shit <laughs> uh, but this whole conversation has kind of like made me beg the question of are there like good musicals that emo kids would enjoy the american idiot one <laughs> shut up no no um. <laughs> I was, like, racking my brain, and I think, like, one of the only, like, truly acceptable musicals is Hedwig and the Angry Inch.
0: Oh, that's a good one, yeah. That's, in general, kind of beloved by punk subculture. Um, Yeah.
1: What's that one, I, is is, is it just called Frank or something like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the the one with, like, the papier-mâché head. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard that one's good. Um,
0: I I didn't uh, see it, but I would imagine the Fun Home musical- would resonate uh, possibly fun?
1: Fun homes, all right. Um, I haven't seen it, but I've I read the to it. comic
0: a long time ago and uh, really liked it.
1: Yeah, the comics much better than the musical. Actually, uh, speaking of which, the Heather's musical is fucking horrendous, but Heather's <laughs> is, I think, a good movie that emo kids would like. Uh,
0: That's another movie that emo the musical thinks it is and isn't. Yeah, I don't know. I I uh, I, I think maybe I was looking at a list of or maybe I would googled Emo the musical a, and some listicle popped up, mm-hmm. and they had John Waters' Crybaby listed on there.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, Little Shop of Horrors, the Rick Moranis, Steve Martin one.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Any of the alt musicals or the rock operas, like uh, one of my favorite films of all time, uh, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise.
1: Mm, uh, Repo the Genetic Opera. Oh, shit, um,
0: yeah. I mean, ro- mm-hmm. ra- ra- Rocky Horror was for the longest time
2: like a weird cult movie, but now it's not that yeah. at
1: all. I mean, I I respect Rocky Horror, but I've seen it so many times that I actually hate it now. Yeah, um,
0: <laughs> yeah. I would say that if if you want to see, if you want that experience of seeing Rocky Horror for the first time, but you don't want to have to see a movie you've seen a hundred times, watch Phantom of the Paradise because it'll fill that same spot in your heart. But it won't be as familiar. Word. Yeah.
1: The Buffy musical, which is the greatest musical of all time, actually. The musical episode.
0: Um, Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Once More with Feeling.
0: I'm actually Um, surprised that Joss Whedon hasn't written a full-blown feature or done a play at this point. Because he also did... um, Dr. Horrible. Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, which was great.
1: I also actually really like the community... Uh, musical episode the the Christmas one that's like a glee parody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I missed community like i uh I was already out of school and everything and living on my own when community first started and I didn't have cable. so I was like three seasons behind by the time the word of mouth started on that show and then it was one of those things where... I couldn't have a neutral opinion on it. Like, if I wasn't immediately impressed, it would have been seen as a character flaw. So I ended up never watching it. Same thing happened with Game of Thrones.
1: Uh, If you are going to watch it, I would suggest at least watching the first episode on Hulu instead of Netflix, because Hulu has the extended cut of the pilot, which is far Mm -hmm. superior to the uh, abridged cut that Netflix has. How many seasons are there? Six. Six? Hashtag six seasons on a movie.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. So I just want to thank both of you for coming on here and entertaining me with this ridiculous topic. And uh, yeah, is there anything that you would like to promote? I know you where where would people find your podcast, first of all, and your social media presence?
2: Uh, It's on every podcast service um yeah but all of uh the episodes are on someone's youtube channel that goes by chill wave um i think a lot of people like listening to it on youtube for that accessibility uh that's that's chill wave with two v's and all the social media um is the e-word podcast but the email is the e-word pod (laughs) i think that's how Mm -hmm. i remember it (laughs) so yeah it's just the e-word podcast one word
0: Uh, and how about individually
1: um you can find me on twitter at you don't need maps um i'm private right now because i made a tweet with my employer's name in it but (laughs) if you request to follow me i I will probably accept um uh you can also find my newsletter at you don't need maps.substack.com um and you can find uh my patreon to contribute to through there uh if you contribute five dollars a month. I'll answer your questions. If you contribute ten dollars a month, I will make you a mixtape every single month, personalized just for wow. you. Wow! Yeah. Dope. Um, and you can also, if you're interested in hearing me talk at length about, or I guess reading me talk at length about uh, all the ridiculous mall emo bands from uh, the mid two thousands, my blogs, my I have almost said blog spot, but it's on WordPress. <laughs> uh, <laughs> If you don't need mouse.wordpress.com. I did a whole series called "Bands You Weren't Supposed to Like" about bands like Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco and My Chemical Romance, and what kind of critical re- reevaluation and uh, value we can glean from them in 2020. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that series, so check it out if you are so inclined. Oh yeah,
0: mm-hmm. you're also a contributor to the uh, the punk and hardcore website No Echo, right?
1: Correct. I am a contributor to No Echo as well as a contributor to The Hard
0: Times. Oh, nice. And what about you, Kyle?
1: Um,
2: I'll just throw out my Instagram. It's uh, my handle on there is nothing feels Gucci,
0: which is the best Instagram handle. <laughs> like <laughs> I,
1: I, Kyle, Kyle told me that his Instagram handle was nothing feels Gucci the very first episode of the E that we ever recorded. And I have never not been impressed by
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. one of those things you want to like buy the URL right away, yeah. just in case. Yeah. 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 All right. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the things we talked about in this episode, you can email me over here at uh, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram at macguffinpod can follow me individually at BC Cassidy. Uh, Keith, who is not on this episode, but he will be returning here shortly. You can find him on his social medias at Keith Foster Kid. And um, leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Pocket Cast, Player.fm. And, yeah, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Is there usually we have a word of affirmation or something at the end of the podcast that uh, Keith comes up with randomly. How would you like to close us out?
1: let's do jocks let's do the word jock <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right thank you guys